So my dad and I had a very tough relationship right until the very end. And the day he passed away, the next morning, sorry, I went to the garage where I used to secretly train in his garage, my parents' garage. And there, which I hadn't been there for ages, was thousands and thousands of memorabilia and articles, five copies each for the last 23 years that he had collected of anything related to me in the newspaper and magazines. And I realized at that moment that I was an idiot because I needed him to say I love you. But actually, he didn't know how to do that, so he showed it in another way. His way of loving me was him collecting all. So it was really tough, him passing away last year. Hello and welcome to the Homing In podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. Today's guest is the acclaimed dancer and choreographer Akram Khan. Akram's rich career includes performing at the opening ceremony of the London Olympics, collaborating with artists Anish Kapoor and Anthony Gormley, and choreographing tours and videos for the likes of Kylie Minogue and Florence and the Machine. He was awarded an MBE for services to dance in 2005. He kindly invited us to his home last summer, and we recorded this conversation in a shady spot in the garden. Akram's of Bangladeshi descent, and he grew up above his parents' restaurant in southwest London. He was bullied at school and harassed by the National Front outside of it, so he's always had a bit of a conflicted view of his community. As a child, he was introverted to the point of being mute, and movement quickly became his primary form of expression. He tells me how he danced so enthusiastically at home that the lights in the restaurant below would start shaking and putting the customers off their food. The word home has come to mean many things for Akram. It's the small studio in the garden where he practices dance for four hours every morning. It's the stage on which he performs, and it's also his own body. As is the case for so many true artists, there's a lot of conflicting emotion inside him. He talks particularly poignantly about his relationship with his late father, who always struggled to demonstrate his love. Akram's story has really stayed with me. Um, Being able to talk to people on this podcast is a huge privilege, and I must say that conversations like this one really do remind me of that. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, uh, and very happy listening. Thanks so much for um, inviting us into your home, which is really kind of you, outside on a lovely summer's day. Something really struck me when I was reading about you. I've got all sorts of things to ask you because you've had a fascinating life. But one of the things you said was, as a kid, I felt very invisible. And I'd love to pick you up on that. What, what, what did you mean by that? I suppose language is the primary form of connection in terms of being noticed. Yeah. But I'm talking about the 80s and 90s and early 2000. I think the world has changed and I think language is visual now. So I wasn't around then uh, as a child. So in, growing up in the late 70s, language was difficult for me, I think. My mother said I, I was, I could speak, I could put a sentence together at the age of seven. That's pretty late, like a proper sentence, correct grammar and etc. And I was kind of flabbergasted discovering that. And she said, yeah, you really struggled with language. So. I was always mute in a way. But then she, she made another comment and she said, but you knew a choreography of 15 minutes by the age of four. So my form of communication was movement. And unless you have a disco hall in the park, in the schoolyard, there's no reason to start moving to communicate. So my form of communication was really mostly mute unless there was a, co- uh, a competition where I would do a dance competition and suddenly I would move from the shadow 
And I became very comfortable in the shadow. It became problematic because I was afraid of feeling dumb. I was bullied a lot from childhood to adulthood by the National Front. I mean, that was racism in the 80s, but also by my own community, particularly the Bangladeshi boys, the girls had more empathy, felt sorry for me. My parents lived through the civil war. In 1971, Bangladesh became independent. And so when they moved over, they were traumatized. They moved over for a very particular reason. They wanted their children to go to private school and get an amazing education. And so I never got into any private school. I think there was a moment where my dad, he's passed away, bless him, but I have a feeling that he was trying to bribe one of the, <laughs> one of the headmasters to let me in because I failed the exam like five times or so. I, I don't know if it was King's College or Emmanuel. It's one of those fancy schools. So everybody spoke really well. They spoke with a posh accent because all the Bangladeshis were trying to be like rich white boys. And so I felt more and more intimidated because I went to a state school and 99.9% of them went to, percent went to, actually all of them went to private school. I was the only one who never did. So I stuck out like a sore thumb. And so, yeah, I eventually became comfortable. That became my home, the shadow, the silhouette. Where are we at this point geographically? Where, where? Oh, Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Yeah, so yeah. I've still been, here. Yeah, I mean, I was born in Clapham and then moved down Balham and then Tooting Beck, Tooting Broadway, Colliswood, South Wimbledon, and then Morden. And there was nowhere to go f after that. I think my parents just went, fuck, the Northern Line's not going anywhere. <laughs> so let's just stay here. So we ended up here for the last, I would say, 40 years. Okay. So tell me about that. You said at age four you could do a 15-minute choreography. Was that based on something that you'd seen or based on something no, that you dreamt up? No, my parents and my mother taught me. Okay. You see, we became, it's funny that we're talking about houses. A house fundamentally is a building that you store memory in and that you experience memory. It's experiential part and it's also like hunter-gatherers where you gather memories outside and you bring it into the house. My house fundamentally was my body and again reiterating the damage that war does to everyone whether you're involved or not involved if you're just from that country you lose people. So <clears throat> my parents, my mother particularly wanted to make sure that Everything that they fought for, all their friends, all their relatives that died f for something, right? So it was for an identity. And so they wanted me to become the living museum. And so my body was the living museum. So they shoved down traditional folk. There wasn't a question of, do you want to do it? It was like, you're going to do it. So traditional folk dance, anything that was Bangladeshi in, in, remotely, songs that, are, you know, that I would, that was so boring that I'd fall asleep. I mean, but... The, at that time, that was the one thing I enjoyed doing, moving. So my mother was really the first point of reference in terms of a dance teacher who was feeding me all these kind of simple folk dance, Bangladeshi folk dance. So interesting. What, so you were an outsider in your own community, you think because just because of the school or was it because of your character as well? I presume I had ADHD, but I don't want to say that lightly. But in those days, there was no th such thing as ADHD. I just couldn't f sit still and I couldn't focus. The only time I became still, funnily enough, was in a dance class. The only time. Or if Michael Jackson was on, or Prince was on, or Madonna was on t uh, MTV or television, uh, or Charlie Chaplin, or Bruce Lee, or Muhammad Ali, Buster Keaton. These were the people that could fundamentally make me still, mm. come to stand still. Otherwise, I had trouble being still. I don't mean physically only, I mean mentally, to focus. And my son has the same problem, so or the same challenge, not problem, but challenge. Yeah, I, f I felt very much a, of an outsider in every respect. The other thing that is interesting to know is that 
my mother's father was a two times gold medalist, math mathematical genius. So some of the community, not all of them, but some of them, especially who had studied under him, thought I was going to be the genius. That I would inherit the maths, become a wizard or something. So after a point, I started to believe I must be. If people believe you're a wizard in maths, you must be, right? So not only did I feel like an outsider, but at the same, I was overtly, openly, sometimes uh, treated like royalty. And then when we came, when it came to A level, I f I failed my maths. I think I got a U or something. <laughs> um, and some of the community who are my f grandfather's students said, uh, advised my mum, he should do it again. The examiners must have been really unwell. They must have got it wrong, <laughs> definitely. So I went for it again. I got a U. And then they suggested to my mum, was Akram feeling well that day? Maybe he w had food poisoning. She said he didn't say anything. And they su suggested I do it again. When I got the three times lucky you, that's when they gave up. And that's when I realized I was living a lie. Or oh, I believed in a lie. And by believing in a lie, if you believe it deeply, your lie becomes the truth. So by default, actually, I became fascinated by patterns. Patterns of movement. Patterns of a bird's m moving. Architecture. And so rhythm became a very strong part of my w research as a teenager and also how people moved. I started observing them and I used to find correlations between animals and humans. That wouldn't have happened unless somebody didn't connect me with maths, even if it was a lie. So interesting. So you, you first learned classical dance um, at a place called the Bhavan Centre, is that right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, that was my home away from home because the Bhavan Centre was the first time I went to, let's say, a proper Indian classical dance class. And it was Kathak, North Indian classical dance form. And there you had a guru. It wasn't my mum or my aunties. I grew up with my mother and aunties. Three quarters of those aunties knew shit. They didn't know anything about music and dance, but they were conducting me and guiding me, all claiming to be teachers who had, no, who had never studied dance. They just sat on the sofa and aunties were just shouting instructions to me. So really going to the bhavan, it was a fundamental shift of this is not a community thing. This is a re religion. This is a philosophy. This is a belief. And you won't fear me, but you will respect the form and you will respect the guru, the teacher. And that's when everything turned serious. It wasn't a hobby anymore. And I, I remember the space. It always had incense. What was interesting about bhavan was it was it reminds me it's a it's kind of a cathedral or a I don't know if it was a synagogue no it's a it's kind of a church really i think it's it was connected to prince charles at the time but it's quite sacred space because i've seen some of the great masters as a child performing in that small tiny stage with a seating of 350 so i have amazing memories but i think what struck strikes me about the bhavan is that it reminds me very much of the purpose of temples synagogues cathedrals mosques the place of worship, right? Mm. The place of worship is not to pray to a particular religion. That's not the fundamental purpose. The fund core of it is to awaken the five senses. So usually when you go to a temple, it's the temple is built on a hill or it's built very beautifully. So this Bhavan had beautiful decoration on the outside and in the inside. There was paintings of Ganesh, Shiva, different gods around the walls. It was very colorful. And so it was to awaken the sense of sight. But there would be a statue there so every day you'd go and touch the feet of the statue and the statue is made out of a that particular god is made out of a particular marble 
which is to awaken the sense of touch. But as you touch, of course, with anything Indian usually, there are incense burning to awaken the sense of smell. And then before you finish praying, actually as you entered, you would always strike the bells to awaken the sense of hearing. And the final one was as you leave, you'd be given prasad, which is blessed food. So it was fundamentally to awaken the five senses. And that's what dance is about, really, or the ritual of dance is about. And so I remember very much, at the time I didn't realize that it was about waking five senses, but for me, those five senses were really seared in my brain, in my memory. And how often were you dancing? I was dancing three or four times a week, mm -hmm. and on the weekend we would be performing. Okay. It was pretty regular. Yeah. It's pretty regular. I mean, we're talking about after school. Yeah. So Tuesday, Wednesday, probably Thursday, Friday, dress rehearsal on stage, Saturday performance for the community. And what, how was that making you feel? You, did you just know that dance was what you needed no, to I do? No, I didn't. No. No, as a child, I mean, I envy those people who know from the age of seven or six or four that they're going to play piano for the rest of their life. That that's what they want to do. It wasn't a calling until much later, until about 15, 13, between 13 and 15 when I joined Peter Brook doing the Mahabharata. But what I did know as a child was that people noticed. And suddenly I went from being in the dark to being in the light. That, ah, there's a boy called Akram. Until then, I could be in a room full of other kids and nobody would know I was there or not. And I became good at being invisible. So what was beautiful was to see the other side and to experience the other side. To know that you could grab the attention of 300 people. So was that a safe space in which to do that? Because it sounds yeah. like you felt quite repressed and so on outside of that environment. No, it was a liberation. Absolute liberation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I find my, my tribe, really. And I was the youngest. My sister and I were the youngest. So we looked up to the 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds. I think it lasted between 7 and 12, maybe, or 7 and 10. And my sister was between 3 and 7 or something okay. like that. She's four years younger. So it was, it was quite memorable. I remember everybody took care. Yeah, it, it was very loving. Everyone was very supportive, except the teacher, Guru, who's still my Guru, Sri Pratapar, but uh, he's always been stern in a loving way, a bit like a father figure. Okay. So tell me about home, because you lived above the family restaurant, did you not? Yeah, that, that had a lot of memories too. That was two worlds coexisting in the same space. There was a bit of, uh, there was a lot of Bangladeshi in there, and there was some Englishness in there. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean... Look, my f mother, at that time, when I was very young, she worked in Decca Records. It's a record company in those days. And sh she would bring scratched records or default records home. They would give it to her. And so she would play records of Tom Jones while my father was playing in the same room Bollywood <laughs> films. So I grew up with a cacophony of very opposing sounds and textures. But that cacophony became calm to me and it became a clarity and so one genre folded into another you know critics talk sometimes about how choreographers these days myself included who, who can fold from one genre genre to another like animation in a live show etc but to be honest with you we were doing it subconsciously then by default it was just accidental that my father would be competing with the volume of Bollywood um, VHS uh, uh, copies on television blasting away and it was Lata Mangeshka versus Tom Jones and it was very jarring musically but it was very comforting over time it's a bit like um, pressure or stress um, when you're under pressure one way is to back away the other way is to go through it to make it your friend and then the pressure becomes 
uh, uh, background noise. And so the cacophony of those sounds, I, I remember very clearly. Uh, my mother tried to wear a lot of perfume because we were always carried in um, um, constantly, 24-7, in uh, Indian restaurant smell because we had to go through the restaurant to get out downstairs. And the other problem was that the restaurant was below us and the living room was above the restaurant. So I would be practicing dance and the chandeliers downstairs would be shaking and my father would come upstairs and said, look, the customers feel uncomfortable. There, there is an earthquake in London, but you're making it feel like there's earthquake. The chandeliers are actually shaking, stop it. So he would shout at me from downstairs to stop practicing. It was a tough time. But as a child, it was a beautiful time. What was tough about it? Tough because there was a lot of yobs, like racist people, men particularly in the, I don't know, they were probably 18 plus, and the pubs would shut at 12 or something, and they would run over at 11.55, so they would drink so much before the pub shut, and then they would run over before we shut, which was at 12. And then they would hang there and hurl abuse. Because I was working there in the summers, teenagers it's funny I, it died down didn't it but it never dies really racism it's just passed down it's just quietened it's funny how it's returned back nationalism and patriotism and with that comes in inherent racism and it was a tough period because I was pretty scared because you're a kid right I remember getting some bottles smashed on my head and stuff or beer glasses or yeah pint glasses and the police would come but they would always come late and then they would interrogate us while the yobs would walk away and we're like but they're the ones it was, it was yeah it was a very confusing time for a teenager to grow up in that environment yeah definitely have you carried a, with you anything from that period i mean did it give you a sort of inner fight somehow or what, what, how do you think it affected you long term i think it gave me resilience yeah mm -hmm. and i think it's funny i see some of those men now oh wow yeah they're much older now and vulnerable it's amazing Time is such a powerful tool. And they're very sweet now, but they don't recognize me. Sometimes we're in a shop in Sainsbury's or something, and I'd recognize them, and I'd say, you're John, right? He goes, yeah, how do you know me? He said, oh, you used to come down to my dad's restaurant. He said, how's your dad? I said, oh, he passed away last year, etc." So those people have changed over time. Some don't, but they did, so. And have you forgiven them? I think more than forgive, I think it's about, yeah, maybe another word for forgiving is accepting. What's important is I'm not going to play the victim. I think the reason I am who I am today is not just because of good things. It's a combination of two things. Things that traumatized you, they define you. Your childhood defines you. Your childhood home defines who you are today. A part of who you are today. What you do with it is then up to you. But I see that in my children. I'm so careful because there are three things that are in my work and in the way I look at home. One of them is belief system. What belief system is in that house? That is passed down to you from your parents. The other one is myth. What religious myth or cultural myth or a modern myth is passed down to you in your childhood? And the third one is trauma. And trauma is inherent. It's passed down from your great-grandparents. And you don't may maybe realize it. We don't realize it, uh, perhaps of why we choose one thing, one direction as opposed to another. It's so subconscious and deeply rooted that maybe something happened to your grandmother or great-grandmother or grand grandfather and then somehow you're making those decisions based on that. It's. I think fundamentally what's interesting about the house or any home is the stuff you cannot see. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just talked about belief, trauma and myth.
three things you cannot see and in modern thinking we believe that in order for something to exist you have to see it but in ancient thinking in order to see it you have to first believe in it and so the home is very much like that it's there it's present those memories are experiential they're there but just because you can't see the trauma physically doesn't mean it doesn't exist such an interesting viewpoint no one said that yet on this podcast but i i think it's so interesting can you just tell me a little bit about your father because i read that he he had quite a number of siblings didn't he and he basically had to kind of run the household from a very young age is that right yeah he had a very tough and brilliant childhood both tough and brilliant that everybody loved him very much but funnily enough he didn't grow up with his parents he grew up in the neighbor's house they kind of in, um, adopted him not officially but unofficially but from a very young age he had to take care of them um, because he was the one who got out of Bangladesh I think during the war or just slightly before the war he got out and he came to do accountancy in London and in the evenings he had to make some money so he was working at an Italian restaurant he always wanted to own a restaurant apparently he always wanted to cook or, or own a restaurant so in the end he, he kind of he got his Indian restaurant but he I think his father never hugged him or said I love you ever I'm assuming he didn't because my dad never said it to me so my dad and I had a very tough relationship right until the very end and the day he passed away the next morning sorry I went to the garage where I used to secretly train in his garage my parents garage and there which I hadn't been there for ages was thousands and thousands of memorabilia and articles five copies each for the last 23 years that he had collected of anything related to me in the newspaper mm. and magazines and I realized at that moment that I was an idiot because I needed him to say I love you. But actually, he didn't know how to do that, so he showed it in another way. His way of loving me was him collecting all. So it was really tough, him passing away last year. And now when I speak about him, I'm trying to find things that are positive. About him because there was positive. It's easier to make someone a villain. And it's easier to make someone a hero. But that's modern thinking for you. We have, in Facebook, we have likes and dislikes. Two options, can you imagine? My relationship between my mother, as opposed to my relationship with one friend, as opposed to my relationship with my daughter, is multi-layered. You can't have just likes and dislikes. But we live in a time of social media where you can only be with me or against me. You can't have a debate about it. And that's extremely dangerous and terrifying, actually. I was of that opinion with my father that he was just a villain. Because as a child, he would he, he had trauma, I think, himself. I don't know. I never really got to know him deeply. So I got to know my mom very deeply. But my father, I didn't. So he would whisper in my ears because I was failing school and not getting to private school. And people would put pressure on my parents that, oh, he's a failed child and he's very problematic. So he would whisper in my ears that you will amount to nothing. But every day before I left for school. And in the evening, my mom would come back because she found out that he was doing that. And she would whisper in the other ear that those who think you will amount to nothing, who believe you will amount to nothing, are actually deeply terrified of who you can become. So I had these two opposing mantras read to me, spoke, whispered to me on a daily basis until I was about 13. Because 13, I escaped. I went to, well, not to escape, but I got to work with Peter Brook, which was a theater, uh, theater director, genius theater director. And we did the Mahabharata, and I taught for a year and a half. So really, I was away for a year and three months, I would say. 
but anything before 13 i was just building up rage against him and at the same time i had conflicting feelings because he would accept getting bottles smashed against his head in fights in the restaurant because he needed the money to put food on the table so it's human relationship is so complex humans are complex and that's why i do dance that's why i do art because it's about exploring and investigating and questioning the human complexity just a quick one i'm really pleased to say that this podcast is sponsored by one of my all-time favorite brands vitsu over the past 25 years or so, I've been very lucky to visit hundreds of beautifully designed living spaces. Uh, and if I could name one product that I've seen more than any other, it would have to be the 606 Universal Shelving System from Vitsu. I think the reason that so many people from the creative industries live with Vitsu shelving is because it's so incredibly versatile, both functionally and visually. It works in big spaces and small ones, uh, modern places, traditional places, townhouses and country houses. Uh, and the key to its success, I think, is that it's been paired back to its absolute essentials. Um, Dieter Rams, who conceived it back in 1960, famously said that good design is as little design as possible. Uh, and I couldn't agree more with that. To find out more about this brilliant product, you can visit vitsu.com. That's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com. Right, back to the podcast. Well, let's move on to the present day. You're a father yourself as well, of course. I'm always interested by this because as a parent, you can sort of follow the blueprint you were given, or of course you can try and improve on it or react against it, if that's the right way of putting it. So how do you square the sort of upbringing that you had with what you try to give your own children? Let me just start by saying, disclaimer, that I'm not in control. My wife is. <laughs> uh, let me just start by that. I, I'm just a passenger observing she she makes all the decisions she's bringing up the kids i'm just a pretty face that when she tells me to do something i just do something because she said i'm the boss at work you can't be the both boss at both places it's it's tough when you see yourself emerging with residue of your parents as you get older you see actually your parents and you are not so far away mm. we can criticize them as much as we like but they did the best they can at that time. I think what we lack is empathy. You've got to understand their flaws, what makes them insecure. We celebrate, and we have always celebrated extroverts. It comes from American culture, really, Western culture. Very rarely do we focus on introverts. Artists are introverts. Einstein was an introvert. A lot of the great ones are introverts because we want to look at the home as an external thing, just like we look at the earth as an external thing. I think the problem that we have is that we don't pay enough attention to the internal home which is your body so my home is my body which is within the house that my wife and I have built which is a collection of memories really somebody lived here before somebody will live here after it's just a shell what's important is what you fill it with and what you empty it with so what do you fill it with well I'm an emptier obviously my wife is not and nor are my kids I'd love to call them professional hoarders. But the reason why the house is in the condition that it is in is because when they're asleep, I get rid of shit and they don't like it. But I just keep claiming that it's not me. It must be somebody else doing it. <laughs> they don't, some, my kids don't use half the stuff 
and I give it a sell-by date of six months. You don't take it out of the bloody cupboard. I'm getting rid of it. It's not necessary. But they're terrified of letting go. So there's something about the house being a bit of a kind of a cupboard where we just collect stuff and leave stuff. And I, I've been always a bit feng shui. I've always felt actually it's giving space to the house within that allows me to feel like I'm living in it that allows movement I don't like to feel claustrophobic because my father was very claustrophobic in the sense that he never released anything so I went the exact opposite direction I was all about getting rid of stuff because I felt the memories are in the body but in saying that we do have collection of stuff like statues I like collecting especially Buddha statues and Shiva statues and stuff like that but yeah so if it is full of stuff what what compels you to empty it out what why do you feel better surrounded by less things i think it's the symptom that we have developed of the phone we are dependent upon it hugely he says putting it to one side yeah <laughs> no no but seriously you take your phone away and we go into panic mode because everything is stored in that phone but that's the beginning give it a few days and that's the beginning of living in the present if you don't have your phone the phone takes you to the past and the future it takes you away from the present the last human ritual i used to say was eating together that doesn't exist anymore because my my wife's on the um, mobile phone my son is on the ipad i say it very quietly because she'll freak out and my daughter's watching television but we're eating around a table and i'm looking at them going we're not eating together we're eating in the same vicinity, but not in the present time. That's what the phone does. And that's what stuff does. It holds you in the past. I want to be in the present. So for me, a home is quite radical, which will lead, I think, to the question of where's your future home? Well, what you have done is what I think everyone strives to do if they can, which is carve out some space of your own, which is the garden building behind you. So yeah. tell me about this. Why did you build it and what do you do in there? Yeah, I mean, it's like my, uh, for a mechanic, it's like their garage. For me, it's it's just God and me. I don't know if you can call it God. My wife says I have two wives, two lovers. One of them is her, the other one is my dance. So in the morning, I come and see her, my other lover. And the garden is beautiful for me because she built, she, my wife built this. She needed a place where she could have a refuge. So I have to cross the garden, which is so beautiful in the morning, to get to my studio. And this is my refuge. I need to be here to hear silence and I need to refine my body every morning between 8 and 12. That's quite a long time. Yeah, yeah, I just need to do it. I just need to do it. I mean, that's a lot of exercise. Yeah, it's what? hardcore. Yeah. It's hardcore. I mean, I'm going to tone it down now, but I've changed. I've changed. Again, my wife thinks that's a midlife crisis. I, in lockdown, I knew I was coming close to retirement. And if I stopped dancing, because I've stopped, I stopped two weeks ago. Two weeks ago? Performing. Oh, wow. So I went to India, I returned the colonial soldier, which Zenos was based on my solo, back to India. And I ended my career there as a full length soloist. Okay. I'll still perform, but small 10 minute, five minute little cameo roles. But that kind of presence of being on the main stage in front of thousands of people for an hour and 10 minutes, that's hardcore. I can't do that anymore. And nor do I want to. Why can't you just physically? It's just very painful. The body speaks back and I have to spend more time in a studio maintaining it. When you're young, you don't worry about those things, which then takes me away from my time with my kids or making work. So there was a, t there was a practicality issue. Second of all, I didn't enjoy the training anymore. 
Once I'm on stage, I'm all right. When I'm training for myself for fun, I love it. During lockdown, I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And of course, that replaced my dancing or that became an accumulation. So I would dance, do my dance training, gym training, and then fitness training and then, or maintenance training, and then I started Jiu-Jitsu. So it went from two hours to three hours to four hours now. But I think one needs to find the pleasure in drowning. I constantly say that. In order to change, you need to go to the threshold of the comfortable to be in the uncomfortable. Every morning, I have to push myself to be in the uncomfortable if I want to change. Change is scary. We want to be, because we have a home. Change is terrifying, but it's an absolute necessity. Has the stage felt like a home to you over the years? The stage is a home. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's more of a home than home, a physical home. Why is that? I don't know, I just became very comfortable. I spent more time on stage than I did off stage to the point where stage was familiar. That threshold of the unknown, which is the stage, became familiar, a familiar feeling. That's why I'm talking, always talking about the pleasure in drowning. You can only find the pleasure in drowning if you're drowning all the time. I mean, I'm interested by this because you describe yourself as an introvert, right? And yet you're very comfortable performing. How does that work? I suppose that is exactly the definition of a human being. Contradiction. When I'm on stage, I feel I kind of channeled my psychology to believe that there's nobody in the audience except me. So I'm performing to myself, who I want to be, what I can be, and what I really am. Those three things exist on stage for me. I, the moment I feel that you are in the audience, I go out of character and I'm watching myself from the outside. That's when you become conscious. To dive in, to immerse yourself, to find the pleasure in drowning, one has to literally surrender to not knowing what the fuck is gonna happen on stage. That's interesting because my wife and I took our 10 year old Indigo to see your amazing production of the Jungle Book Reimagined, which is incredibly beautiful, macabre, fascinating. I asked her what questions she would have for you. Your daughter? Yeah. Yeah. And she said, along the lines of what you were saying, you, what would Akram say is going through his mind when he's either performing or coming up with something as amazing as that production? What kind of mindset are you in? How, how, how does that work? 100% curiosity. In the early stage, 100% non-judgmental. Anything is possible. I try to return back to the child way of thinking, my child way of thinking. I also try to return a lot to my child body because in the studio, but particularly on stage, I'm never alone. All my ancestors are with me, all my family's with me. When I need to turn to rage, my truth, I'll use my father. When I need to turn to inspiration or hope, I'll use my mother. When I need to turn to messed up, a bit good and a bit bad, I'll use one of my aunties. So my, my family's constantly on stage. When I'm in creation, they're, they're always present. And also are the families of the people that I'm working with. I work tribal, tribally, if you can say. Mm. I work with a tribe, a collection of people that I've gathered for that particular project. And I lead by example where I'm co I try and be as transparent as possible. I start with my fragility and vulnerability. But what's important is I try to remind them and convince them, which I will stand by, is that I'll hold their hand all the way through till the end, until the premiere happens, and then they're on their own. But you've got to start with the truth. Yeah. We asked you to think about where you might want to live in future life and you chose the Kalakshetra Foundation in Chennai in India. A place like that, yeah, it's an amazing Indian dance school. The Kalakshetra fundamentally 
was a place of refuge for the classical arts and knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and wisdom. And it's really set in acres and acres. Like the, the studios are huts and all around you there's a theater, there's two theaters, huge theaters. It was designed and the visionary was Rukmini Devi and she created the school. And I would love to live in a place like that. I'd love to live in a place where there was maybe one or two acres. I lived on a land in the forest where there were some studios and I'd, this is my dream and you'd have fighters studying Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in one of the studios you'd have the community for free training other community children in another studio and then you'd have a research center for thinkers and philosophers and creators to think how do we devise and create ancient stories and future stories and make it relevant to us today? And what genres would we use? So you would have all of that existing in this few acres of land that I would be living on with my wife. But my wife thinks that's not, she says to be careful because I, I, that's bullshit. Um, that's a romantic version. She, she says, you know, you'd want immediately to go to a hotel, five-star hotel. <laughs> uh, what do you think? She might be right. <laughs> so I would like to think... It's true, right? Yeah, it's true. So I'd like to think Kalakshetra would be my home, but I think within a week I'd want to come back to Wimbledon or something. I don't know. Right now I'm very happy where I am because this is where my kids are. I love being in Wimbledon and I hate being in Wimbledon. Why? Well, I hate Wimbledon theatre and everything it represents. It's the closest theatre to us. It's only for white people. Is that right? Yeah, it's programmed for white people. And I'm like, there's so many South Asian people, there's so many Korean people, that why not open it up a little bit? And also I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder because they've never bloody invited us to do anything. We travel the world, we're a force to be reckoned with, predominantly in Wimbledon, it's wealthy white people. But in Merton Park and New Morden and Rains Park, you, you have all these kind of communities that would never go to Wimbledon theatre because it, it, it's not their stories that are being told. It's white musicals or musicals for wealthy white people, really. And I'd love musicals that reflect other communities too to be present. That would be beautiful, I think. I'm not saying you shouldn't have for wealthy white people. They are part of the community too, but they are part of it. They're not the only community. I'm really interested in this idea of sense of place that we all establish because you've obviously grown up and lived in this area your whole life and yet you describe the cultural institution here as something that you don't recognise and doesn't represent, you know, you've had or people... Or anybody from the community. Well, quite. You've had people, you know, physically assault you in your childhood and things like that. So how do you feel about this sense of place that you've built up for yourself? This unsettlingness has become very settling. Time is just an amazing thing. Over time, you just learn to accept that you will never fully feel at home anywhere. You're constantly on the move. I never felt completely at home in England. Yeah, England is my home. I always felt like a foreigner. And more so now, right? For a while I felt at home, I would say, in my teenagers. But then early part was really tough through racism. And then now it's all national front and it's all the rise of racism and Brexit and all of that. And when I'm in Bangladesh, I've always felt they've always made me feel British. So you never really belong in one place. Final question. At the end of the Jungle Book, the stage performance, you had a, a message come up saying it was in loving memory of your father, who'd obviously recently passed away. And Darek's, uh, the writer's mother and brother who passed away recently. Okay. So you were all going through quite a lot in making that production. First yeah, time. both of us. Yeah, he lost his brother who 
who committed suicide and a year later he lost his mother and I in between that I lost my father yeah so uh, you you told us about your father and and how as a child it was quite a difficult relationship at times I mean was that a form of closure in a way for you because you said you discovered all those articles about you in his garage which showed you that he was keeping tabs and really cared about what you were doing looking back now do you feel like you can draw a line under that and say in a way you sort of succeeded and you can put those kind of childhood feelings of inadequacy behind you I think there is no line and there is no closure that's a concept that's man-made I think well let's put it this way if you close one door you've immediately opened another and I think it's yes you're right I've closed one door chapter my father passed away there's no opening that one but by immediately closing you've just opened the door of relearning of what your father meant to you I think we want to love people in the way we want them to be and what I realized over time and especially when my father passed away that I didn't love him for who he was I hated him because I couldn't love him for the way I wanted him to be so love sometimes is more about you than the person you're aiming the love at what I didn't realize was sometimes the way we act on the outside is because we have issues on the inside that we don't quite know how to deal with so as he passed away from that moment on that door was shut and a new door was open to relearn what he was really who he was really because as I said from our conversation it's really easy to just say he was a bad person how do you relearn it to put context distance is amazing when you take distance from it absence is amazing you know he used to annoy me every morning he used to call me when he knew I was training in the studio he would still call me <laughs> and he'd say okay Baba he used to call me dad he used to call me dad so listen I need about 20 tickets for your next show I'm like you can't just ask, what for he goes, yeah, I, I have friends, right? They're, they're, and I said, but the show's in seven months. He said, yeah, yeah, but give me the front row. I'm inviting them. So he was eccentric, this, my father, right? He would call my office just out of nowhere and say, where is Akram right now? He's in Japan. I thought so. Listen, can you organize 10 tickets for me in Japan? For who? He said, I've got family there. There was a moment where it got so bad that he... I didn't even know about this. He had directly contacted my office because the officers are really polite with him because he's my father, right? So they can't say no to him. That's why he, and he knows that power. So he calls them and we do a preview of Until the Lions, one of my productions at the Roundhouse, Chalk Farm. And we're doing this preview. And I'm like, the first seven rows looks really familiar. It was 250 people of out of 500 people in the first seven or eight rows they're on my whole neighborhood <laughs> my father had gone knocking on everybody's door and saying you must come and see my son make yourself free on that day it's not even a question would you like it's like <laughs> you have to come so he was bonkers really his personality was bonkers but that was his way of showing his love for me and at the time i only saw it as a problem but over time through absence I started to realize that was a very beautiful thing because now I miss him knocking on everyone's door and going Akram is going to perform on the 21st of this do you want to come and see it Akram what an absolute pleasure you're such a wise soul thank you very much thank you great being here thank you so much 
Thank you very much to Akram. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, uh, please do make sure that you follow the show on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, And if you can spare a second to give us a quick rating or review, uh, we would be very grateful indeed. If you're looking to buy or sell a home this new year or you're in need of some design or architecture inspiration for a project you're working on, the Modern House can, of course, help you with all of that. So do take a look at our website, which is themodernhouse.com. This episode was edited by Oscar Crawford and produced by Hannah Phillips with music by Father. Thank you all very, very much for being here as always. Uh, That's it for now and I very much look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Bye bye.